This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. I was speaking with Caleb this week, and his van died, or it's in the process of dying. Soon they're going to have a funeral for it, which he has not had, we don't believe in luck, but he has not had good luck with vehicles at all. So he had to get a replacement. And as he went to look for a replacement, he found someone that had a car for sale. And the man said, well, I had this car and I got it for my son. And I told my son that he could have the car as long as he would go out and get a job. And if he went and got a job, well, I would help him pay for the car. Well, that's good parenting, I think. Uh, The only problem is his son did not want to go get a job. And so now that car became available. And now that's what Ashley and Caleb are going to be driving around And uh, I don't know what you think of that. Turn, please, to the book of Romans. Romans. I want you to notice something in Romans chapter 8. It says in verse 29, For whom he foreknew... Now skip down to the end of verse 30. These he also glorified. So everyone that God foreknew or cast his love on ahead of time, these he also glorified. At the end, they were fore, at the beginning they were foreknown, and at the end they were glorified. They were in heaven. Now several things happen in between, and this is what the theologians call the Ordo Salutis. For whom he foreknew, these he also be he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, that is, decided to save or determined that they would be saved, something happened experientially to these people. These he also called. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning, the calling. Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified... These he also glorified. Today I'm going to try to convince you that the doctrine of irresistible grace is scripturally accurate and logically accurate and therefore true. The difficulty in this task depends primarily on how well you depend, you understand and grasp the first three sermons in the series. We are on part four of a five-part series on the doctrines of grace, also known as the five points of Calvinism or Reformed uh, soteriology or sovereign grace. It's how God saves sinners. Now, I just want to say that these points stand or fall together. Uh, They are Siamese quintuplets. All five points are inseparably linked, both scripturally and logically, in a way that if you can just prove, disprove one of them, well, then the entire system collapses. Thus, you cannot consistently call yourself either a three-point or a four-point Calvinist, Um, T-U-L-I-P, they all stand together. Let me give you, as promised, just a little bit of a history on how this all came together. 
There was a Dutch theologian by the name of Jacob Herman who lived from 1560 to 1609. Uh, we know him better by his Latin name, Arminius. Uh, he was educated as a reformer, but he got a hold of the teachings of Erasmus and he changed his mind. Um, Arminius became an Arminian. His disciples were the Remonstrants or the Protesters or Arminians. You see, years after his death, he was already dead, his disciples put together the five points of Arminianism. What are the five points of Arminianism? Well, the first is free will, that man was not rendered dead by the fall of Adam, but only wounded, and that we are good enough to believe and to be saved. We have enough ability to do that. Uh, the second point is that of election, but election which is... Um, Conditional, based solely upon foreknowledge, what God would know, that's what he made his choice. Uh, next came the doctrine of universal atonement, that Jesus didn't die for anyone in particular, but that he died for everyone in general. And then uh, the doctrine of resistible grace, that God's call can be resisted. And then finally, falling from grace, that you can be saved at one point and then you can lose your salvation. Well, these followers or disciples of Arminius made a protest uh, to the state of Holland in the year 1618 in the Synod of Dort. They met for seven months, over 154 sessions, and they were using the Bible alone to determine whether these five points of Arminianism were true. And at the end of 154 sessions, these theologians came to the conclusion that it was not only unscriptural, but that it was heresy and that it was a false teaching. Calvin himself was also dead at this time, and his followers made a protest against the protesters. And they came up with the five points of Calvinism, which were in opposition to the five points of Arminianism, and that's how we come up with T-U-L-I-P. Up to this point, uh, we have looked at Tulip from a Trinitarian perspective. That is to say, T, uh, total depravity, stating that man uh, is unable and unwilling to come to Christ for salvation left to himself has to do with man. The U, unconditional election, uh, says that God, for only reasons known to him, chose to save certain individuals based solely upon the good pleasure of his will, and that is referring to God the Father. The L is referring to the second person of the Trinity, and that is Jesus Christ, and that Christ came and that he laid down his life on the cross for those whom the Father had elected. And now today, we're going to be talking about the work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, in irresistible grace. And here's how it all fits together. If we believe and understand that man is dead and that he cannot and will not save himself, and if we believe that the Father has elected some to salvation, and if we believe that the Son died for these and these only, then it stands to reason that his Holy Spirit will regenerate those same people. Now, that makes sense logically, but is that what Scripture teaches? Well, that's what we're going to have to answer this morning and enable you to answer that question where you've provided a insert in your bulletin and outline with several verses that are there. Please feel free to look these verses up as well, but most of them are provided for you. But this is not going to be accomplished through any kind of a clever argument. This is only going to be accomplished through the power of the Spirit. So let's bow in prayer and ask the Lord to assist us this morning. 
Thank you, dear Father in heaven, that you, in eternity past, have set your love upon your people. Lord, thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for these people. And Lord, thank you that your Spirit, experientially, brought to life these people, drew them to yourself, and gave them faith and repentance. Lord, thank you that you will keep these to the end. Now, Father, I believe that because that is what your word teaches. And now, Lord, as I present that, I pray that you would enable me to use just the right words and to omit the words which would be confusing or would be inaccurate. Lord, I pray that your word will speak to us this morning. Lord, I pray that your spirit will speak to us this morning. Enable me, dear Lord, as I preach, fill me with your spirit. Fill me, Lord, with zeal. Fill me, Lord, with compassion. Lord, fill me with passion. Lord, fill me with energy. But Lord, more than that, fill the ears of the people and fill the hearts of the people with truth. Convince them of truth, truth that will cause them to glorify you and to magnify your name. Thank you for this, Lord, in advance. And Lord, we look forward to seeing what you're going to do through your book, the Bible, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start off with a question, and that's Roman numeral one, and that is, who makes the difference? In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, for who makes you differ from another? That is a question, that is a rhetorical question, and that rhetorical question has an answer, and the answer is God. And what do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. Now, if you indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Who makes the difference? Uh, is there a difference between people? Absolutely, there is. Uh, some are born free with endless opportunities. Some are born as slaves with very limited opportunities. Uh, some are born healthy and bright and talented. Some are born with birth defects or mentally dull. And uh, the list of differences is endless. The question needs to be asked, who makes this difference? Why would there be two people from similar backgrounds sitting in the same service under the same sermon under the word of God and one person is broken and receptive and fascinated and believing and responsive while another person from the same background is bored and confused and angry or disinterested or unmoved? Who makes the difference? And the implied answer is God. The only logical answer is that God makes the difference. And when it comes to salvation, it's God that makes the difference there as well. Notice how the Westminster Confession, chapter 10, um, section 1, puts it. All those whom God has predestined unto life, and only those, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit, out of that state of death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly enabling them to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come most freely Look at those words in capitals, being made willing by his grace, being made willing by his grace. Now, notice that phrase. Let's review something that we said when we talked about total depravity. Who can be saved? Anybody that wants to. 
When can they be saved? Anytime they want to. But who, according to scripture, wants to be saved left to themselves? And the answer is nobody. No, not one. For there is none that seeks after God. No man can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father which sent me draws him. So then, how does someone get saved? Well, the answer is God makes that person willing. God makes that person want to. Remember the illustration that I gave when we talked about total depravity. You could, at any time you wanted to, go out onto the lawn of our church, get down on all fours, and eat grass. You are capable of doing that if you have a reasonably good back. You could do that. When will you do that? You will never do that. Why will you not do that? The reason you will not do that is because you don't want to do that. Why don't you want to do that? The reason you don't want to do that is because you have a human nature. You do not have a bovine nature. You're not a cow. You're a human being. If we were to implant in you the nature of a cow, you would want to leave this church and eat the grass in our lawn. That's just the way it is. You are a sinner by nature. Now, come to Christ anytime you want to. When are you going to want to come to Christ? You're never going to want to come to Christ unless and until your nature has been changed, until you're given a new nature. As we look at this, I would like us to consider it from a couple of different angles. First of all, here is the argument for experience. Now, I am the last person in the world to build doctrine from experience. However, some of the proof of irresistible grace is the testimony of every born-again Christian. And that is this. You know full well, and you yourself must admit, that there was a day when you yourself were dead and disinterested. You loved your sin. You did not want to be ruled by God. You did not have an understanding, nor did you have an interest in the things of God. Christians to you were bothersome at best, and they were scary and fanatical at worst. And then all of a sudden, you yourself came to life. You came under conviction. You had a desire to come to Christ, which wasn't there before, and you can't explain it. You understood the gospel. You were enlightened, and your life was totally changed. And you yourself know full well that you had nothing to do with it. Those emotions and those convictions in your heart were not something that you mustered up. There wasn't something there that you were talked into. Uh, there wasn't a set of facts that intellectually convinced you. There was a miracle that was done in your heart, and it was done by God. An argument for irresistible grace is that he came and got you, and you know that he came and got you. You didn't earn it, you didn't ask for it, and it hit you when you least expected it. You look at those around you in your world, the people that you grew up with, you look at the people uh, that you used to run with and you say, why in the world am I different now? You know that something happened to you that did not happen to them and you know that you can't take credit for it. You can't explain it, but you have to admit that it's true. You did not make yourself willing. You were made willing by the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. There's no way that you could have resisted that call and you know that you couldn't resist that call and you didn't want to resist that call but forget everything that I just said because we cannot build doctrine from experience. So let's move on to letter B. What irresistible grace is not? Now, these words are bothersome to some people, so let's talk about what it's not. It kind of sounds like we are robots, and that's not what the doctrine of irresistible grace says at all. It does not mean 
that whether we want to or not, we're going to come into the kingdom of God. I totally disagree with C.S. Lewis, who said that he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture. We are not saying that God forces you to be saved. We are not saying that God coerces you or that God does violence to your will. Listen to the way that Martin Luther put it. When God works in us, the will is changed under the sweet influence of the Spirit of God. It desires and acts not of compulsion, but of its own desire and spontaneous inclination. In other words, he causes us to want to love him and to believe in him. And I firmly believe that we do exactly what we want to do 100% of the time. Every decision that you have ever made has been because that's what you have wanted to do. And every choice that we make is a genuine choice which we ourselves make, which is not coerced. But the key to this is to understand that our will, what we desire, is governed by something. It is governed by our nature. And every decision that we make is determined by the strongest inclination of the will at the point of decision. And for one who is totally depraved without the Spirit of God, the strongest inclination of the will will never be to trust Christ and to believe in Him. Furthermore, irresistible grace does not mean that God is forcing us against our wills to believe in him. Irresistible grace does not mean that God's elect cannot resist him, because we do resist him all the time. What it means is that we do not resist him effectively or ultimately. Let me give you an example. Stephen was getting stoned in Acts chapter 7, and he said these words in Acts 7.51, speaking to the Sanhedrin. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Now, who was there when he said that? The Sanhedrin, the 70 chief priests and elders. And there was someone there that was holding their coats. That was a fellow by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Did the Sanhedrin resist the Holy Spirit that day? Yes, they did. Did Saul of Tarsus resist the Holy Spirit? He absolutely did. Did Saul of Tarsus ultimately, for the rest of his life, resist the Holy Spirit? No, he did not. He received an effectual call and was brought to life. You see, the Sanhedrin resisted all the way to the grave. Saul resisted to a point, just like you and I did, but until they were irresistibly drawn then they were saved. Continuing on what it does not mean. Irresistible grace does not mean that all of a sudden a power comes over us and forces us to believe and confess things that we really do not believe or want to embrace. It's not like we are all of a sudden sitting there and the Bible says that we are to obey Christ and all of a sudden we start moving. It's like, I don't want to read my Bible, but I am forced. No, we're doing what we want to do. This doctrine does not suggest, nor does it imply, nor does it teach that we are puppets or that we are marionettes or that we are robots. There isn't a Calvinist in the world that believes that definition. What we believe is that we have been made willing. We have been made willing. That's the best way to describe irresistible grace. Moving on to letter C, 
If you have trouble with these words, irresistible grace, let me give you another name. It can also be called effectual calling. Effectual calling, if you like. Effectual sounds like the word effective, which is what it means. In other words, it will indeed accomplish that which God intended it for. Calling means the call to be saved. Now, here's where you have to put on your thinking caps. Effectual calling, therefore, means, irresist or irresistible grace, says that those whom God intends to save will respond positively to the call of the Spirit of God. It is a call that works. But in Scripture, there are two different kinds of calls. There's the outward call, which is the call of the preacher. Let me give you one right now. To every person in the room that is not saved, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is an outward call. That is the preaching of the gospel. It's what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 22:14 when he said, many are called, but few are chosen. It is what Jesus said in Mark 16:15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's the outward call. Uh, you share that with unsaved people and you share it indiscriminately. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That outward call is resistible. That outward call is not effectual. That outward call can be and most often is rejected. But the agent of the outward call is man or the preacher. On the other hand, there is an inward call which is directed to the heart. And the agent of the inward call is the Holy Spirit. The inward call does not go out to everyone. It only goes to the elect. And it is effectual. In other words, it works. And it is irresistible. We cannot and will not turn him away. In other words, those whom the Lord calls will come to Christ for salvation. All of them. Let's take a look at the verses that are listed there. Romans 11.29 For the gifts and the calling from God are irrevocable. The verses which we read earlier. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called, that is the called ones, according to his purpose. Moreover, whom he foreknew, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So everybody who ends up getting called is going to be in heaven. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. John 6, 63 and 65. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And he said, therefore I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And then Acts 13, 48. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many has been, as had been appointed, and God's the one that makes that appointment, as many has been, as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Flip your paper over. Someone will say, 
Well, what if a person wants to be saved, but they're not elect? And he comes to Christ. Will Christ turn him away? And the answer is, the person that is not elect will never want to come to Christ because they will not be called. They will continue to do what they want to do. All right. Let me say one other thing about these two calls. And this is a quote from John Murray. And John Murray wrote a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I found this to be very, very helpful because you're going to see the word called many, many times in Scripture. What does it mean? Here's what Murray says. In the New Testament, the terms for calling, when used with reference to salvation, are almost uniformly applied not to the universal call of the gospel, that is, from the preacher, but to the call that ushers men into a state of salvation and is therefore effectual. There is scarcely an instance where the terms are used to designate the indiscriminate overture of grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you do the statistics and read through the New Testament and look at that word called as it relates to salvation, the vast majority will refer to the inward call of the Holy Spirit, which always results in salvation. Turn, please, to Second. Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us, here we go, and called us with a holy calling. How did that work? Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before time began. Donald Gray Barnhouse, and this is a, a pretty lengthy quote, but Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from 1927 till 1960, prior to James Montgomery Boyce, says this about the difference between the outward call and the inward call. And I think he makes a really good distinction here. He said, and I quote, and it's lengthy, so stick with me. If men heed no more than the outward call, they will become members of the visible church. In other words, if you pray the sinner's prayer and confess that you are a Christian based upon the outward call that you receive, you will become a member of the outward church. If the inward call is heard in our hearts, we will become members of the invisible church. The first call, the outward call, unites us merely to a group of professing believers. But the inward call unites us to Christ himself. The outward call may bring with it certain intellectual knowledge of the truth. But the inward call brings us faith in the heart. The outward call can end in formalism. The other will end in true life. The outward call may curb the tendencies of the old nature and keep the soul in an outward state of morality, but the inward call will cure the plague and bring us to triumph in Christ. You see the difference between the two. And the reason I say that is because Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, that not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father, which is in heaven. 
All that to say, there are some church members. Now, we don't know who they are. We honestly don't know who they are. But there are some church members who have gone through the motions and have done all of the right things and responded to an outward call. But in reality, they are not saved. There's a difference. So, how does Scripture describe our salvation? Well, Scripture describes our salvation, and this moves us to Roman numeral 2, in three metaphors. And this is a pretty convincing argument, at least from my perspective. If we want to know about salvation, where do we go? We go to the Bible. What does the Bible say about salvation? Well, the Bible describes salvation in metaphors. Let me give you three of them. The first one is the metaphor of resurrection. Notice how it is described in Ephesians 2.1. And you he made alive, that is resurrection, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, were we literally dead? No, we were not. We were still walking around. We were still breathing. It's speaking about being spiritually dead. But we were spiritually brought to life. What is that a picture of in the mind of God? It is a picture of resurrection. What role did Lazarus play in his own resurrection? What if when Jesus stood outside that graveyard in Bethany and told them to roll away the stone and said, Lazarus, come forth, a voice came from within the tomb and said, No, go away, I'm fine. He was the one that was dead and he was being raised. He was being acted upon. The dead cannot raise themselves. Turn, please, to the book of John, chapter 5, verse 21. Biggest word in the text is the word as. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, this is speaking of resurrection in the same way that that happens. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Boy, I have used this illustration so many times. I hesitate to do it because it will put a yawn on the faces of those who have listened to me preach for the last 18 years. But for those of you that are first-time visitors, get the picture of a funeral home and a casket and you walk up to the casket and you address the person in the casket and you ask them if they're thirsty, if they want a drink of water, or you ask them if you'd like them to turn up the heat. They're not going to give any response at all. The reason why is because they are dead and we are said to be dead, but our salvation is said to be a resurrection and a resurrection is something which we cannot muster up on our own. We are acted upon. That is one metaphor for salvation. Here's another one. Same chapter, nine verses later, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are said to be a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Now, think about this metaphor. Nothing has ever been created that has given its consent to be created or refused to be created. 
When God said, let there be palm trees, a voice didn't come back and say, no, we refuse to be created. Everything that was literally created was totally passive. And in the same way, when we were brought to life, when we were created, Ephesians 2.10 teaches that we were spiritually spoken into existence and that we were totally passive in this. Here's another metaphor. And it is the metaphor of birth. John 3.3 Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. People have no choice In their birth, they cannot decide where they want to be born. They cannot decide when they want to be born. A person doesn't consent or refuse to being conceived or born. I see in the back of the church this morning that Oliver and Linda are here today. I'm glad to see you guys are here. Um, When is the baby due? February 18th. Let's just say Easter Sunday rolls around and... Linda, at that point, is really big, and we approach her and we say, you know, we thought the baby was due sometime around the middle of February, and she was to respond by saying, I know, little little bugger refuses to be born. I don't know what to do. He just, he's, he's made up his mind. He's made up his will. He says he's not coming out till the 4th of July. I've talked to him. There's nothing we can do. That's ridiculous. And spiritually speaking, we are said to be born again. We are not active or volitional in our regeneration. And each of these three metaphors, we are, here's the blank, totally passive. Totally passive. Which brings us to Roman numeral three. You must be born again. You must be born again or regenerated. Now, the theologians call this the ordo salutis or the order of salvation. And as I pointed out earlier, it starts with foreknowledge that God sets his love on a people. It does not say what God foreknew, but it says whom he foreknew, whom he set his love on. He predestined, he predetermined that they would be saved. Next in the ordo salutis is effectual calling, which we've talked about earlier, that inward call. Then comes this stage in the Ordo Salutis, and this is regeneration. Regeneration, followed by the gifts of faith and repentance, which God gives us. Justification, which is actually the closest word that we have to salvation. Then adoption. Then the process of sanctification, which is growing in grace. And finally, the act of going to heaven, which is glorification. Now, let me explain effectual calling and regeneration, the difference between the two, or should I say, how one leads to the other. It is the inward call of God from the Spirit which brings forth life in the dead heart of a sinner. In other words, the effectual call of God regenerates or brings about the new birth. Now, the new birth is not the same thing as salvation. Sometimes you'll hear people say, If you believe, you can be born again. Well, I know what they mean when they say that, but that's technically not right. In fact, most most people would say being born again and being saved are the same thing. But scripture teaches that being born again or regenerated leads to salvation. They are not synonymous. And if you look at that word regeneration, jenna, 
is the word from which we get life or birth, and re, which means again, it means to be born again. Thus, to be born again is to be brought forth or regenerated. Well, that has to happen before we are saved. Look at these verses. 1 Peter 1.23, having been born again or brought to life, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. What is the agency that God uses in order to bring us to life? It is the word of God. You remember the story of Ezekiel standing there in the valley of dry bones. He preaches to the dry bones. The spirit comes, breathes life into them. They are assembled. The sinews are formed and they come back together. How does this happen? Well, it happens through the word of God, but it also happens by the will of God. It is not our will. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth or caused us to be born again by the word of truth. 1 John 5.1, pay very close attention. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. It doesn't say that you become born of God when you believe that Jesus is the Christ. It says that the way in which you come to believe that Jesus is the Christ is because you have been born of God. And Jesus said in John 3, 3, a verse that is, I would say, the most misunderstood verse in all the Bible. Jesus answered and said to him, Nicodemus, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Seeing the kingdom of God does not mean going to heaven. Certainly those who see the kingdom of God, will go to heaven, but seeing the kingdom of God means understanding and comprehending salvation, being saved, and unless you are regenerated, brought to life first, you cannot see or understand or accept salvation. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we are born again and then months or years later we are saved. Uh, That's not true. It's bang, bang. It's more a logical distinction than it is a time distinction, but it is a time distinction. Both logically and scripturally, you have to have life before you believe. How does a dead man believe? Tell the dead man, as soon as you believe, you can be saved. Well, that's pretty tough if he's dead. So, the summary statement for this entire five-week series, which really sums it all up, is this. Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration comes before faith. In the Arminian view, you believe and then you are brought to life. In the biblical Calvinistic view, you are sovereignly brought to life by the Spirit through the Word and then you believe. In other words, the reason why you believe is that you have been given life. And what is the result of that? Roman numeral four. The result of that is that you are going to believe and you are going to repent. You see, the man is spiritually dead. He hears the gospel message outwardly. He receives the inward call from the Spirit. That brings him to life. When he is brought to life, he now wants to believe and he now wants to repent. And only then does he see his his need for salvation. And at that point, he is given two gifts from the Lord, which he freely and willingly and joyfully exercises unto the salvation of his soul. The first gift is the gift of faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Arminians will look at that and say, see, it's by faith. But they will leave out the next phrase, which says, that not of yourselves. 
the faith that you get, you didn't muster up on your own. It was given to you. And in order to drive that home, the writer, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, reiterates it by saying, it is the gift of God. And now he drives it home even more by saying that it is not of works, and if it were of works, well, then we could boast. Philippians 1.29 says this, For to you it has been granted of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name. Now, the emphasis in that verse is that the suffering which you have to go through has been granted to you from Christ. But in the middle of that verse, don't miss what it says there, it has been granted to you to believe. You don't muster it up on your own. And we are also given the gift of repentance. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted... You want to talk about a metaphor? It's a grant, it's a gift, it's a free gift. God has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. 2 Timothy 2.25 clearly teaches that repentance is something which is given to us as a gift. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Therefore, we say to all men, you must repent, you must believe. How can I be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Must I repent? Luke 13.3. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Must I believe? John 3.36. He who believeth not is condemned. You are responsible to repent and to believe. But you are not capable of repenting and believing unless you are alive. And you are not alive unless you have been called. And you will not be called unless you have been predestined. And you won't be predestined unless you were foreknown or foreloved by God. You say, so God is issuing a call to someone which they are not capable of keeping. Absolutely. Don't confuse responsibility with ability. We have the responsibility to repent and believe, but we do not have the ability. When God the Holy Spirit comes through the preaching of the word and breathes life into a dead sinner, causing that person to be born again, they will be effectually called unto salvation. Then the sinner comes to life and is made willing. All right, <clears throat> let me move along to what is the most common objection to this. The common objection is from Revelation 3.20, which Christ has, Christ is standing at the door, and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. First of all, let me say this. That is not a call for an individual Christian to be saved. That is a collective call to a church to have fellowship with the Christ. It's speaking to people that are already saved. But let's just say for the sake of argument, it is referring to the call for someone to be saved. I'll, I'll give you that for the sake of argument. How in the world does a dead man hear get up from where he is, go to the door, and open it. He doesn't, and he can't. Sometimes the police have to go and knock down a door to get into a house. The reason why is because the person inside is dead. 
I was taught in college when I did evangelism, Jesus is, uh, Jesus is a gentleman. He will never knock down the door. Well, I'm sure glad he knocked down the door of my heart because I was never going to answer. I was never going to answer. Let's look at a couple of examples of how this worked in Scripture. First of all, there's Matthew. He's a tax collector. He's making a very good living. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said, follow me. So he arose and followed him. That's what it means. Here's another one. Lydia in Philippi. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. How in the world did she become saved? The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. She didn't open her own heart. And you didn't open your own heart. Let me see if we can apply this message this morning. And I want to give you five points of application. Uh, Here's the same application you're going to hear every week. And that is, the doctrines of grace should cause us to be more evangelistic and to share the gospel more. Some people might say, well, why evangelize? And the reason why we evangelize is because the same God that ordained the end, that is, his elect would be saved, also ordained the means by which the elect would come. And knowing that God's elect will come through the word of God, we are to go out and to preach the word of God. You say, this will kill evangelism. No, it won't at all. The greatest evangelistic meeting in the history of the world took place in Acts chapter 2. Peter preached and 3,000 people were saved. What did Peter say at the end of that sermon? He said, Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, here we go, and as many as the Lord our God will call. Tells them all to repent, but he tells them who will respond. As many as the Lord our God will call. Here's the second point of application. Because of effectual calling, we at North Shore Baptist Church do not have altar calls. What is an altar call? First of all, you need to know that altar calls are relatively new in church history. They've only been around for about 150 or 160 years. Some people think they've been around forever. They were invented, if you will, during the First Great Awakening. They have things like decision cards, statistics, how many people were saved, keep track. Sinners' prayers, putting a prayer under someone's nose and saying, here, read this, and after you've read this, you're in the kingdom of God. You see, because we believe in effectual calling... We don't have to be clever or eloquent or emotional to have people saved. We don't have to manipulate them or play on their emotions. We don't have to sing 12 verses of Just As I Am with a fog machine. We tell people to repent and to believe, and we leave it in God's hands. This week... (coughs) 
I received a call. There was actually a call on the church answering machine. You could tell it was from an older gentleman, and he said, Hi, I'm a backslider. Could you call me back? I called him. The man said, I got saved when I was 15 years old, and I've lived the rest of my life for the devil. He said, I'm now 94, and I'm afraid to die, and I have nothing but regrets. Well, I pointed this man to Christ. Christ can forgive all sin, and he can forgive years of sin. But let me tell you something. This man, when he was 15, and I'm not being judgmental, this man, when he was 15, was not saved. You don't get saved and then go into rebellion for 79 years. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. And he had an assurance of salvation at one time because he walked an aisle with his sister when he was 15. But there was no understanding of the gospel. I pray for this man and I ask you to pray for him as well. But a lot of false conversions have taken place because people have been given a sense of assurance from another Christian and not from the Holy Spirit or from slick evangelists who are salesmen who have talked people to walk down an aisle in order to build statistics or gotten them into the baptismal pool to build statistics. The problem is these people were not called by God. If they're called by God, their life and their heart are going to show it. Therefore, altar calls are very dangerous. It's the reason why we do not sing hymns like hymn number 338. Turn to it, please. We're not going to sing it. Hymn 338 says, The Savior is waiting. The Savior is waiting to enter your heart. Why don't you let Him come in? There's nothing in this world to keep you apart. What is your answer to Him? Oh, time after time He has waited before, and now He is waiting again to see if you're willing to open the door. Oh, how He wants to come in. This was what was sung to the Apostle Paul when he was on the road to Damascus. Oh, please come. Oh, I'm wooing you, Paul. No, he knocked him to the ground. He blinded him. You can't read about Paul's personal decision. Paul was brought to faith effectually, and that's how we were brought. Then the second verse says, If you'll take one step toward the Savior, my friend, you'll find his arms open wide. Good parenting is when you tell your son, I'll give you that car if you go get a job. If you just take one step... God will take the rest of the way. This hymn says, you take one step and God will meet you. The Bible says you are dead. If you can take one step, that would be the greatest self-induced miracle in the world. You can't take one step. You're asking people to do something that they cannot do. If you'll take one step toward the Savior, my friend, you'll find his arms open wide. Receive him and all of your darkness will end and within your heart he'll abide. We can't take that step. So that's why we don't have altar calls. Here's the third point of application. Please don't confuse tears and goosebumps and emotion and a temporal change of life with effectual calling. You see, people will say, and they'll be living in out-and-out sin, no understanding of the gospel, We'll try to convince them that they need to be saved. And they'll say, don't tell me that I need to be saved. I was there when it happened. I felt it, brother. I felt it. 
Keep in mind that Satan is a master of deception. And he uses emotion to give people a false sense of assurance. I feel emotion when Jose Reyes hits a triple. Or or when I watch It's a Wonderful Life. But that's not the same thing as effectual calling. The true sign that one has been effectually called is not tears and emotion, although tears and emotion can accompany that, but a true sign that one has been saved is that there will be a life of holiness and a love for Christ over a sustained period of time. I have a friend named Andy Thornley who used to say when people would come forward and profess Christ, I'd say, well, did they get saved? He would respond by saying, time and the devil will tell. Time and the devil will tell. Here's application point Number four, if you're saved, please let your testimony reflect the fact that God did the work and that it was not your decision. Lord, thank you that you created me in Christ and that you birthed me and that you raised me and that you called me. Even as Wesley said, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart went free. And I rose and I went forth and I followed thee. Let that be your testimony. That God did the work. That he called you. That he awakened you. That he saved you. Not here's what I did. Harry Ironside told the story one time of a man that had given a testimony, and the man gave a testimony speaking of what God had done for him. And after the service, a man came up to him and said, listen, your testimony was a little bit misleading. Why didn't you tell the people what they had to do and their part? The man said, I'm sorry, you're right, I should have. My part was to run away from God. His part was to chase after me and catch me. Give God the glory and not yourself. And finally... Finally, today, if God has spoken to your heart and if through the preaching of the gospel today God has opened your heart as he did Lydia's heart, then heed the things spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you want to be saved today, you can be saved today. Know that the reason why you want to be saved today is because God has done the work in your heart. But if you want to be saved today... Jesus said, he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. I will in no way cast out. Father, please impress these things upon our hearts. Draw your elect to yourself, Lord, and those of us that know you, Lord, cause us to rejoice, to rejoice in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.